Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Yesterday, we posted the first in a four-part collaboration on mass incarceration that we're doing with Cited, a podcast out of the University of British Columbia. One of the three interviews in that show was my conversation with Larry Krasner, the left-wing civil rights lawyer who won the Philadelphia Democratic primary for district attorney and is all but certain to win the general election. Knock on wood. For the purposes of yesterday's show, my interview with Larry was whittled down to less than 20 minutes. As a bonus episode, we wanted to offer you, the real criminal justice nerds and anti-mass incarceration warriors out there, the full interview. So, here it is. And before we get started, if you do like the show, if you're a regular listener, please take a moment to help the people who spend half their waking hours each week working on it. And of course, I'm referring to myself and Alex Lewis, my producer. Like you, we need to pay for rent, beer, and food. So go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the dig. Our goal is to reach 700 supporters by year's end. If we can get there, we can cover not only our own finances, but also begin to make a major investment in improving the audio quality of our guests. And that would be rad. Okay, here's the show. Larry Krasner, welcome to The Dig. Well, thank you, Dan. It's always good to hear from you. So when we first met many years back, you were one of Philadelphia's most tenacious civil rights and defense lawyers, and I was a reporter at the now sadly defunct Philadelphia City Paper. It was 2013, if I remember correctly, and I was writing a story about a client of yours, Askia Sabor, who had the crap viciously beaten out of him uh, by police on a West Philadelphia sidewalk on video for no good reason and was then charged with assaulting the cops who beat him up. And prosecutors were rolling with it, even though it was based on obvious police lies. Now, at this point in time in 2013, did you ever think that you might one day become district attorney in Philadelphia? Uh, nope. <clears throat> it was not. It's not that I was disinterested. It was not a focus. It was not really a career goal at that time. It was uh, really not something I was thinking about. What was your tell? Tell me about a little bit about your the work that you were doing when I first started interacting with you as a reporter, and what sort of clients you were representing, and how you viewed the police, district attorney, and and local criminal justice system as a whole at the time? Well, I was a criminal defense lawyer. Uh, I was probably in about my 25th year of what's now a 30-year career as of November. And um, I was spending four to five days a week in either state or federal court representing individuals in criminal matters. And I was also uh, filing civil rights cases and litigating civil rights cases, often against police for brutality or corruption. 
um, things of that sort. There were a few other things, but more than anything, I was a trial lawyer who was working in the field of civil rights and the defense of individuals in criminal court. Um, so it was, you know, I mean, it, to me, it's not that different than what I hope to do in the future, but it certainly was wearing a different hat. I want to talk about how we got into the current mess that we're in today, both nationally and in Philly. What role, in your view, have prosecutors and the Philly DA's office in particular played in the rise of mass incarceration and, more broadly, in systemic criminal justice system abuse and wrongdoing? Well, I think that the <clears throat> the prosecutorial role has been crucial. You know, the reality is that at a certain point, it got to be an important stepping stone for a politico, for an aspiring politician to be a DA. So we saw the rise of someone like Arlen Specter from district attorney in Philadelphia to U.S. senator and then, you know, to a great power broker or Ed Rendell, who started out at about 35 becoming district attorney in Philadelphia and then, of course, became mayor and became governor and became best buds with Bill Clinton and head of the DNC and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we've seen others who were less successful at their political ambitions, but no less ambitious, like Lynn Abraham, uh, who might have been the most damaging of them all, or Seth Williams. Uh, you know, these folks are egocentric, politically driven, ambitious, and all of them frankly, we're more concerned about advancing beyond the office than the office itself. That is a pattern that I think is very common across the country. Um, and once people began to view that position as being a political sp springboard, they viewed the decisions that one makes from that position as being part of the politics of their advancement. So, of course, they were going to appeal to some of the, uh, how shall I put it, less enlightened voters by fear, uh, by Willie Horton tactics, by thumping their chest and talking tough and playing tough and fulfilling the role that yellow journalism has kind of laid out for them for you know over 100 years. Crime sells papers. And uh, to the extent that the newspaper or television news became a morality play about a good, tough, strong person, DA, fighting against a bad thing like crime, it was in their political interest to lock people up more and more and more as a way of advancing their political career. So I think that's, you know, that's sort of the crucial point. And yes, we had mandatory sentencing. Yes, we had the war on drugs. Yes, we had all these vehicles like the Rockefeller laws, three strikes, things of that sort that provided certain tools in the toolboxes of prosecutors. But to me, the most driving force has simply been the reality that it became a political springboard, and the people who were attracted to that office were, time and again, willing to abuse it for their own personal advancement. What well, what are some of the particular practices that district attorneys in Philadelphia employed that resulted in unfair outcomes and in mass incarceration in terms of sentencing, in terms of the relationship? with the police department that provides so many witnesses in the cases that a district attorney's office brings to court? There are a couple things that are anomalous to Philadelphia and Pennsylvania that I think bear mentioning because Philadelphia in many ways is an extreme example. Um, one of them is our history with Frank Rizzo. Frank Rizzo was a beat cop and then he was the police commissioner and then he was the mayor and he was the 
mayor who to some extent sold out the city's finances forever to pensions for government employees, especially police. And he was the mayor who would go to official events in a tuxedo with a nightstick stashed in his cummerbund at a time when there was extreme racial division in the city. Uh, he very much was a Mussolini-esque character in Philadelphia, beloved of the Archie Bunker types, and hated for the most part by um, African Americans for things like strip searches in the middle of the street of young African American males, and also for you know shootings in the back of unarmed men, overwhelmingly black men, that were never prosecuted. There is another side to this story, in fairness, and that is uh, a story of his having been part of a machine that provided jobs to blacks in Philadelphia that they didn't previously have. Um, but mm -hmm. in the eyes of most Philadelphians who remember that period, uh, you know, that was really a political calculation on his part. It was not reflective of his base or what he fundamentally stood for. That, that shadow, the shadow of Frank Rizzo, frankly, still looms. And it still looms in the sense that the district attorney's office, to a large extent, has been run by conservative elements in the police department, run partly because of the Rizzo tradition, but partly also because unlike New Jersey and some other nearby states that have been much more modern when it came to things like the death penalty, which they eliminated, or cash bail, which they're already well along towards changing, Pennsylvania has always had this duality. You have progressives and liberals in Philadelphia and to some extent in Pittsburgh with a tremendous amount of votes, but in the middle of the state, you have Trump voters. It's referred to as the T. It's also referred to by some people as Alabama. No offense to Alabama. And so people in Philadelphia, such as district attorneys who are elected by the county, who wanted to run statewide for governor or senator, knew they had to pander to the middle of the state, which believes things that are quite different than what Philadelphians believe. And one of the best ways to do that was to be on the good side of the Fraternal Order of Police in Philly. Uh, because the fraternal order of the police could be very persuasive with the various fraternal orders of police across the state in getting uh, in getting support. So, um, you know, what has happened in Philly with the DA's office has, to a large extent, been not only that Rizzo tradition with its racist aspects, with its, uh, I would say, biased pro-police aspects, even when being in favor of police meant you were in favor of corruption, or you were in favor of not turning over evidence, or you were in favor of racist practices. So they have that. But they also have the reality that district attorneys were willing to eat out of the hand of people like Frank Rizzo as police commissioner, or other police commissioners, or more importantly, fraternal order of police for statewide support when they ran for higher office. And what were the concrete practices that prosecutors em em embraced um, that got us to where we are today. Um, as you mentioned, there were big changes in terms of sentencing established by elected officials via statute. What were the decisions, though, that, that prosecutors made? What role have, did they play? I mean, there is a, a sad tradition of um, concealing evidence, of not turning over exculpatory evidence. There is a sad tradition of coercing witnesses, including juvenile witnesses, to say whatever it was that the police or the prosecution felt uh, would get the result they wanted. And there is a very clear tradition of charging the highest possible charges, trying to achieve the highest possible convictions, and trying to get the longest sentences, regardless of what a more balanced view of the whole system might indicate. Uh, so what you have said, what you've had is sort of this techno technocratic metric 
of maximizing convictions and cutting corners to do so, maximizing sentences and viewing that as an index, the index of success with no regard, none for the real consequences of spending that much money on putting people in custody who may not need to be there. I mean, you know, let us let us not forget about 6% of criminals do commit about 60% of serious crime and they deserve appropriately lengthy sentences. But um, that only leaves 94% who aren't in that simple category. 94%, some of whom belong in jail for shorter periods of time, some of whom belong on probation, some of whose cases should simply be diverted so that they don't get convictions because convictions tend to drive back toward crime. And that was not in the equation. You know, $40,000 per human year in jail was not in the equation. And so here we are 30 years into my career, and I'm a graduate of public schools. We see schools all over the city that are closing. We see class sizes in public schools that are close to 35. This is the poorest of the 10 largest cities in the United States. It also in 2014 had the highest homicide rate of the 10 largest cities in the United States. It's about third for infant mortality of the 10 largest cities. And it also has an absolutely dismal um, record of public school achievement, despite the good efforts of a lot of great teachers. So we have been trading money and jail cells for education when we know that education actually prevents crime. Um, and it's just, you know, it's almost been this blinded situation where as a defense lawyer, if you even tried to talk at sentencing about how much it was going to cost to take some mentally ill homeless person who was on his fifth retail theft and put him in jail for two to four years, if you even tried to talk about that, you would you would either be laughed out of the room or told not to speak of it, or if you were fortunate, simply ignored. It has not even been acceptable to talk about the costs and the benefits in the sense of a, a more global view of justice uh, in the courtroom when we were dealing with sentencing or decisions about whether to pursue the felony or the misdemeanor and things of that sort. So you're the Democratic nominee, and not to jinx you, but all but certain to win the general election. If you do win, what do you think your office can do to right these decades of criminal justice system wrongs? Well, <clears throat> point one, my last political certainty was that Donald Trump could not be president. So I don't really consider anything in politics certain. And and when you represent a bona fide challenge to the status quo at many levels, um, I'm taking nothing for granted and we're fighting as hard as we can for the general, which is on November the 7th. But if I am fortunate enough with my <clears throat> band of pirate activist organizers who seem to do politics better than politicians to be elected. Uh, there's a number of things we want to do. The first thing we want to do is stop seeking the death penalty, which has cost about a billion dollars since the 1970s. <clears throat> billion dollars to, that could have been to Philly. And no, to the state. To the state and of Pennsylvania. In, throughout Pennsylvania, there's been about a billion dollars spent in the last 50 years on the wow. death penalty, but we have we've not actually executed anyone against his or her will since 1962 which is more than 50 years ago. Um, and we have released from death row six exonerees because they did not commit the crime for which they were going to be executed. So, you know, that's that tells you something. It tells you about where your resources are going. It's a very, very expensive process to try death penalty cases. It costs $10,000 more per year just to keep someone on death row as opposed to general population. 
And when you start to really look at it in general, it's over a billion dollars that we've spent on a death penalty that is never imposed. So, um, you know, that will not I will not be exercising my discretion to seek the death penalty in any case that I can foresee. That's for sure. Um, we are also going to take very uh, a long list of steps <clears throat> to try to deal with mass incarceration because it is a blight and it is closing our schools and it's taking money away from job training and it's taking money away from addiction treatment. Um, in terms of addiction, which is an out of control problem in, in Philadelphia and frankly, I think throughout the country, we have three people dying a day from opiate, opioid, heroin, fentanyl, fatal overdoses in Philly. And we have 13 a day dying statewide. And the numbers are increasing as we go. So um, yes, we need to treat the people who are addicted as people who have a medical problem, because that's what it really is. Locking them in jail cells is just you know, highly ineffective. But we also have to be willing to go after power and to go after wealth and not just to go after broke corner drug dealers. This is a big pharma-generated problem. We have four times as many pills circulating now as we did 10 years ago for some very specific reasons having to do with big pharma and the profits it wanted and its sales reps and its deceptive advertising and that it has worked its way all the way down through doctors and through dentists and through pain centers uh, and through pharmacists and it has corrupted the whole system to an extent where, as I said, we have all these people dying. We, we will lose more people to heroin, fentanyl, opiate, opioid overdose in the United States this year, or about the same, as died in Vietnam. And Vietnam was a war, I'm speaking of American soldiers, was a war that went on for years. So that should be indicative of how serious this is. We're going to have probably three or four times as many people die from these fatal overdoses than killed by homicides in Philly. And we have a, a dip, very difficult problem with homicides in Philly. So it's a real deal. But it means that you have to be willing to look seriously at supervised injection sites. And you have to be willing to mean what you say. Use the system to get people who are addicted treatment. Don't use it for the purpose of sticking them in jail cells where there is no treatment. We have to be willing to do that. And we have to be willing to go after the the liberty and the careers and the assets of companies and medical professionals who are willing to make money off of uh, spreading pills like Skittles that frankly just kill people. So we have to be that, doing that. That um, sounds like quite a contrast to what I've seen some DAs in suburban Philadelphia and Montgomery County and Bucks County. Um, their response to the crisis has been to pick up and run with this charge of drug delivery resulting in death, which essentially mm -hmm. accuses um, either low-level dealers or fellow or just really fellow addicts who are sharing drugs or, or selling them out of their own supply with essentially homicide sentences as long as for the statute, um, I think, allows for sentences as long as, as 40 years. What's your take on drug delivery resulting in death? You know, I've been doing homicides a very long time, and there in Pennsylvania there are five different levels of homicide. Three of them are intentional in the sense that they are murder, but there are five different levels of homicide. Those levels have always been sufficient to encompass the range of possibilities that may be involved in a death that is the result of an overdose. I mean, it's possible to deliberately kill somebody with drugs. That may be a first-degree case. It is also possible to, uh, you know, inadvertently with a level of criminal recklessness or disregard cause the death of another, but to do so accidentally. And that's more like involuntary manslaughter, which carries 
a maximum sentence ordinarily five to 10 years. So we have these tools at our disposal to evaluate each situation. What you're really seeing with all of that commotion is just politics. It's just the same old nonsense. It's the war on drug rhetoric all over again, as if talking in these terms is somehow going to stop an addicted person from sharing drugs, or it's somehow going to stop a street corner drug dealer from doing what they're already doing. It's, you know, it's just a repetition of mistakes from years gone by. Um, but it's the kind of thing you do if you want to run for statewide office. It's the kind of thing you do if you want to ingratiate yourself with um, some journalists who aren't really very reflective or aware of history. And it's the kind of thing you do if you are trying to ingratiate yourself with some of the, um, how shall I put it, less well-informed people in law enforcement. Um, I'm not going to, you know, I'm in, in an appropriate case. There are five different levels of homicide available, but I'm not going to sit here and say something as ridiculous as anytime anyone dies from a drug overdose, we're just going to snatch up somebody else and try to put them in jail for 40 years. It just doesn't make any sense. Let's talk about some of the other reforms that are on your agenda if you are elected, starting maybe with cash bail. I mean, what we know from the District of Columbia and to some extent Kentucky and New Jersey and from a wave sweeping across the country is that cash bail has contributed mightily to mass incarceration by making sure that poor people, uh, often on non-serious offenses, sat in jail. It's been a terrible deal for taxpayers because, for example, in Philly, it costs about 135 bucks a day to keep someone in jail. But that person may be sitting there not because the case is serious and not because of a record of failing to appear. That person may be sitting there for lack of $500, all right? That's a bad deal. That means taxpayers are paying a fortune simply because this person doesn't have money. And someone who has money but is charged with the exact same thing, with the same record, got out on day one. It's just a bad system. It's a system that clearly works against poor people and has very little to do with the actual danger presented by that individual or the likelihood of that person showing up. If you look at D.C., for example, they have for decades had a system where judges are not permitted to make money any aspect of bail. So then people who are arrested fall into two categories. First category, which is usually over 80, close to 90%, are people who are released. They may be released with conditions that they have to go to a day center because it's perceived that they may have a drug problem or a mental health center or possibly a center dealing with homelessness or some other issues. They may be released with no conditions, but they're released because a careful analysis indicates that they're not a terrible risk to society and that they're probably going to show up. And the results speak for themselves, which is that there's very little recidivism. They show up overwhelmingly, and when there is recidivism, it's very seldom violent. It is appropriate and reasonable risk management because that's what we do in criminal justice. We manage a risk. And then on the other hand, you have that approximately 12 to 15% of people who are arrested and are assessed to be a serious risk or to have a terrible record for showing up, and they're detained. There's no amount of money that's going to get them out, and there shouldn't be because you know the evidence is strong, and they are charged, for example, with – Homicide, shootings, rapes, gunpoint robberies, uh, you know, burglaries of structures where people are home and where it's occupied and they have a record and so on. They should be detained and they are detained. But it's a much better system than what we have going now because it relates directly to people's risk, both the risk to others and the risk of flight, as opposed to relating to their ability to pay. If you do want to end cash bail in Philly, how do you go about that? Is it something that can be done overnight? It, it cannot be done overnight. Philly, once again, has to deal with the fact that it's part of Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. District of Columbia is sort of a 
I mean, it's the federal government, right? It's kind of a state if the state were the federal government. It's so a state it's, with uh, uh, no federal representation, I always point out as a native of D.C. Well, that that's true as well. But it's, <laughs> it's, diff- it's different in ter- terms of its law enforcement because it has a unified law enforcement system. And in some ways, it's easier for them to, uh, to do things decisively. So they were able to do that decades ago. It is unlikely that a Republican-dominated legislature in Pennsylvania with heavy influence from bail bondsmen who make a bunch of money off of this and with a legislature that's in love with having people in jail for a whole lot of political and financial reasons, it's very unlikely they're going to pass a law that says no judge can ever make cash a part of bail. That does not, however, stop a progressive DA in Pittsburgh or Philly from going to court and on every single arraignment where bail is being set, urging the court either to give an astronomically high bail because the person really should be detained regardless of financial means, or to give a bail that is rec- that is ROR. In other words, you're released on your own recognizance without any money, possibly with conditions, possibly without conditions. If those recommendations are always followed, then you really wouldn't even need any sort of legislation to make cash an impossibility. They won't be always be followed. Ending it in practice, if not in, in the, by the letter of the law. Exactly. The, the more realistic outcome here, because it will not just be bail set at the time of the bail hearing, um, it will not, but it will also be bails that are reconsidered in the municipal court or the common police court, the trial courts in Philadelphia at various different hearings. The more realistic outcome is that immediately the system will move in that direction. But because of the independence of the judiciary, and they should be independent, some judges will be very attached to an older system, or they will simply philosophically feel differently. So uh, while the difference may be very bold and very significant, it will only take place if there is buy-in from bail commissioners and judges who are educated into the reality of how well some other systems have worked. And that's part of the task that I think the next DA is going to have, is to uh, be able to look at actual experience in other jurisdictions, studies that have been done, show the benefits, show the successes, and then win them over to the reality that cash is not the most important aspect of bail. It's really, this is really a system of carefully managing risks in a way that's best for everyone. What are the other items on your to-do list to end Philly's contribution to mass incarceration? Well, it would be nice um, to have more accurate outcomes. We have too many exonerations. We have them because there has not been an open file system where all of the information in the case is shared. I mean, there have been there have not just been shredders. There have been shredders that were worn out in the early 1990s and replaced by other shredders for statements <laughs> that did not fit the prosecutorial theory of the case. And, you know, we know that a lot of ways, including those of us who were in, who were in the system. But we even know it from looking at the time period when a lot of the exonerations are, are coming up. You know, we have a way to know for sure that mistakes were made because we have DNA that was saved at the time, but was not properly testable or not tested at the time. And when we test it now, we know for certain that people who've been in jail for 25 or 30 years were innocent from the beginning. So, you know, with that bit of science, we have a window onto what was actually going on. There has to be, you have to have a complete disclosure of proper evidence to the defense so these cases can be tried properly. We need to have a level of parity in the pay between the public defender's office and the district attorney's office. It's simply not fair to have one team that's compensated like the NFL 
and then have the other team compensated like Pop Warner. That is not that's not fair. <laughs> it, it, you know, it just doesn't provide for appropriate outcomes. The game is not even fun to watch, and it's frankly even worse in terms of court-appointed attorneys and the compensation that they receive for the work that they do as compared to the compensation of district attorneys. So we have to do that. Um, we have to, I think, more than anything, we have to change the culture of the DA's office where generations of DAs who really did have a Frank Rizzo attitude hired more generations who they thought were just like them, who hired more generations who they thought were just like them. And I don't, you know, I don't want to suggest that all prosecutors are in that mold because they're they're not. There are a lot of prosecutors, especially these days, who I think are really fair-minded people who absolutely want to do the right thing, and have always wanted that in a way that is, you know, directed towards justice and equality and sees the bigger picture. But there's no question that the old guard in that office is in control, and the old guard in that office is uh, not desiring change at all. In fact, one of them went out of his way to say that there's nothing wrong with the ship. The ship does not need to be righted, and we do not need an outsider telling us what to do. Well, that crowd needs to go. They need to get out of the way and let people who are ex-prosecutors but have been on the other side, let people who uh, have a, a real moral compass about justice and you know, let people who are sophisticated and modern and understanding of the mistakes that have been made in the last 50 years, let them run the show. And if we can really do that, then I think that there are those prosecutors who are very open to those ideas and that vision. And then there are new prosecutors who are going to be coming mid-career or straight out of law school who have heard the phrase mass incarceration, who take seriously the idea of crime prevention as opposed to the DA's office being a political springboard. What sort of resistance inside the office do you anticipate and what sort of turnover do you think that might result in? As I said, I think there is an old guard. Uh, it certainly is not everyone who's above a certain age. That's not the case and, uh, and such. But there's an old guard there who actually think that Lynn Abraham for 19 years was doing the right thing when, frankly, she almost never did the right thing at all. You know, there is that crew. They're very loyal to a particular way of doing things, which is very authoritarian, uh, very unscientific, very political. And they are not only going to resist, they are, you might say, uh, in the throes of trying to resist even now. Uh, those folks got to go. I mean, some of them are leaving already, which is a good choice, and some of them are going to go. There is nothing new about that. I mean, you should know that when our new attorney general, Josh Shapiro, came in, in an office of almost the exact same size as the Philadelphia DA's office, he is, of course, the statewide prosecutor. He eliminated over 60 people, over 40 attorneys. There are 300 attorneys in that office, and nobody thought there was anything unusual about that. You know, mm -hmm. My understanding mm -hmm. is that when Arlen Specter came in as a Republican district attorney, as a young man, um, he fired every Democrat. Now, I'm not interested in firing people for political reasons, but I would not be keeping my promises to pursue a particular vision if I was afraid to move along people who are committed in every single way to denying there is a problem, to, the, to changing the problem they have created, and are simply hoping to fight against this vision in the office and stay on the taxpayer's uh, you know, ticket. That's just not going to happen. So, I mean, even if you look at Kim Fox in Chicago, right? Kim Fox in Chicago didn't fire many people at first, but she ultimately had to 
fired quite a few people because she had deputies who were at war with her mission to reform things and to make them better. If you look at Kim Ogg, who is the new district attorney in Houston, she came into the office and she got rid of over 40 people. Once again, a very similarly sized office, over 40 attorneys at the beginning. And there are some people in that office who think she should have gotten rid of more than 50 people. This was an office where the work product of the attorneys who were there before her was destroyed when she walked in the door because there were things that wow. she was, she was not supposed to say. Isn't that obstruction of justice? Well, let me, let me not comment on that, but let me just say that um, it is normal for there to be turnover. These are not civil service positions with an entitlement. These are positions that are at will, and it is normal for there to be turnover when a group of people in the office represent a different vision than the person coming in. So yes, there will be turnover. There's no magic number. There is no specific list of people, but there will be turnover uh, and people whose vision is incompatible with the progressive vision of the next district attorney in, in Philadelphia, and I hope that person will be me. Uh, I mean, they would be well served to find another place to work. I want to touch on something that you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is about the importance of getting things right and about seeking justice and not just seeking convictions. Seth Williams, uh, the now incarcerated former district attorney of Philadelphia, after coming under a lot of fire from the Pennsylvania Innocence Project and others, including me, over basically fighting to keep people with strong claims of innocence in prison. He made this big show out of creating a conviction integrity unit. Um, He had another name for it. I don't remember what it was. But initially, at least, that conviction integrity unit appeared to do next to nothing or maybe really nothing. What's your assessment of Philadelphia's track record of writing wrongful convictions? And how are you going to um, change things? The track record is awful and improving, Um, only improving recently and only improving slightly for a lot of reasons. But, you know, the reality is that what happened with the Conviction Integrity Unit in Philadelphia is that the person who was selected to run run that unit uh, was a complete zealot when it came to believing that anyone who was convicted was guilty. That's just the reality. Very effective trial attorney and someone I've known for a long time and personally respect, but his belief system did not allow for the possibility of innocence. That was a decision. It was a decision Seth Williams made to give lip service to the idea of a conviction integrity unit while putting it in the hands of someone who would never see the possibility of innocence. And so you had some pretty ridiculous situations like what eventually happened with Anthony Wright, where DNA evidence came back, making it clear that Wright had nothing to do with the case, and yet they retried it on a brand new theory, that there must have been somebody else on site, and that Anthony Wright must have played a different role than the one for which he was convicted. And um, I mean, frankly, not only was he acquitted, but I think the the jury was upset they had to sit through that nonsense. Uh, So it's a bad record, but it uh, it has gotten a little bit better recently. There's been some new blood in the unit. The unit has slightly enlarged. There are people who look at it and frankly think it's political. And it's political because of the scandal that was coming out of having a conviction integrity unit that was really a conviction defense unit. But it's, you know, I'll take improvement any way it comes. I don't even care if it comes cynically. I'll take improvement and I'll take good people who want to take a serious look at false convictions and change that. Most importantly, of course, you know, it it will never be a perfect system. 
But it doesn't have to be a cynical system where we don't care if people are innocent. And that is in many ways what it has been for a long time. So I'm I'm very hopeful that by instituting really important reforms in how information is exchanged with the defense and how modern techniques involving the videotaping and tape recording of witness statements and of defense confessions and also various photographic identification techniques, the more we are genuinely involved in using more accurate and scientifically supported methods, the better opportunity we're going to have to make sure that the innocent go free and the guilty get convicted. How will you measure your success in ending Philly's contribution to mass incarceration? Are you going to be looking at prison admissions from the city and the city jail population, or have you decided how you're going to look at that? You know, that will be a factor. There has been some significant progress in the last couple of years due in large part to the MacArthur Foundation having given a grant to the city to have various experts and specialists pay attention to it because Philadelphia, among other distinctions, has uh, has had in many ways the worst rate of county incarceration of the 10 largest cities in the United States with some of the longest delays before you actually got cases disposed, resulting in people in sitting, sitting in jail for a long time. A result that doesn't make a whole lot of sense in a city that's over 50% non-white and 80% democratic and has a long tradition of freedom. But the good news is there has been some success. There have been reductions in the county jail population uh, that are on the order of close to 18, 20%. That is a positive. I mean, let's understand since the 1970s in Pennsylvania, the jail population statewide has increased seven, let me, let me try this, sevenfold, all right? So in order for us to get back to those levels, you'd have to be trying to reduce the jail population by about 84%, which I don't think anyone takes as a serious possibility. But it is serious to talk about reducing the jail population 33% or to talk about reducing it maybe 50%. Now, there's a nasty secret lurking behind all of this good news that needs to be checked much more carefully, which is that it's very easy in Pennsylvania to reduce your county jail population simply by giving defendants state sentences. Anyone who sits in county has a sentence of 11 and a half to 23 months or less. All you have to do to become a state prisoner is have a sentence of 15 more days, meaning one to two years or more. So there have been times when there was prison overcrowding in Philadelphia, and I have had judges say to me, well, look, Krasner, I'd be inclined to give your client a county sentence, but we really got to keep people out of county jail. I'm giving them one to two. That goes Jesus. on. We need to we need to, we need to look a lot more broadly at this phenomenon, uh, not just at the county. I mean, we need to look to see whether what has happened is while the county population is going down, state population is going up. I sincerely hope not, because part of the whole engine of this problem has been the fact that the that Philadelphia sends a lot of prisoners into state custody, and they are a valuable political and economic commodity to the conservative counties that have state prisons. And they're valuable for two reasons. Number one, the way the census counts people is any Philadelphian who's in a, let's just say, center county jail is counted as a resident of center county for the purpose of federal funding, for example, highway funding, even though that person cannot drive a car because he's locked up. And for a district Right. They're also counted as a resident of Center County for the purpose of gerrymandering, redistricting, even though they can't vote while they're in jail. 
So, um, and, and make no mistake, a lot of these county jails are a big source of employment in some of the counties that are struggling over the last 50 years with the loss of a steel industry and the loss of a coal industry. So, you know, you have every political and economic reasons for people in the counties that are more conservative in the middle of the state to want poor, predominantly of color, Philadelphians in their jails. Um, and, you know, and because of the nature of the state and this battle that we have between the big cities with their diverse democratic populations and the center of, of the state where they have Trump signs on the lawn, because of this battle, it will it will be a continuing cycle that we have to fight. There's a really eerie and disturbing echo there of the three fifths clause in the Constitution, except in this case, it's even worse. It's a five fifths clause. And these largely white areas get to politically benefit from black people, not exclusively, but often black people who are denied the right to vote. And those are the legislators passing mandatory sentencing. And those are the legislators passing sentencing guidelines that are too draconian. Um, And yes, they are the same folks in the DA's office who want to run to become legislators. So it's it really is a very problematic situation. And the best way to fight against it is to make sure that local district attorneys are elected who are very progressive and are going to use their generally fairly broad discretion to bring some balance to the system, to decide that they're not going to use the mandatories when they don't have to, or they're not going to use them at all, to decide that in certain cases these guidelines are appropriate, but in other cases they're just much too high. So we're going to go in there and ask for a more appropriate sentence, but also to come up with diversionary programs and other programs that actually prevent crime instead of doing what they do now, which is creating a cycle of poverty and increasing crime. I want to put on my pessimist hat for a minute. You have a really bold agenda in terms of cash bail and drug war prosecutions and wrongful convictions, but so much of mass incarceration in the United States and in Philadelphia exists not only because we punish people who, who shouldn't be punished at all or excessively punish people for minor crimes, but that we, we've we punished people increasingly harshly over the years, people who do objectively bad things like violent crimes. And I think that violent reducing sentences for violent offenders remains a third rail, even amongst mainstream criminal justice reformers. How are you going to think through dealing with, with, with prosecutions of people who who do bad things in a way that doesn't continue to drive the levels of, of, of mass incarceration that we've had over the past decades? The origin of this issue is the notion that someone who commits a violent crime is a fundamentally, irrevocably bad person. Some of them are. A lot of them are not. That's just reality, and I don't say that as a matter of my opinion from having represented over 10,000 people and talked to them in ways that no prosecutor could because I was defending them. I say that based upon science. I mean, look, for example, at the fact that we have seen in California, which was truly draconian with its three-strike laws, we have seen that at a certain point, I guess it was about six or seven years ago, they realized that it was an unsustainable system. And so they took all these people who were doing life sentences because they'd committed third strike offenses. And they did what they referred to as a realignment. A lot of those people got out. And lo and behold, these terrible, awful 
horrifying people who'd done three crimes and needed to be locked up for the rest of their life were released. The level of recidivism was quite low at that point, and it was quite low for reasons that are frankly scientific. A lot of people age out of crime. A lot of people commit crime, even violent crime, in ways that are situational as opposed to fundamental to their nature. It has to do with their poverty. It has to do with their age. It has to do with poor decisions getting involved in a gang that felt like a family. I'm not saying this to make any excuses for their conduct. That's not my point at all. But my point is if you start with the notion that someone who does a violent thing is irredeemable, then, you, then you're wrong. You're scientifically wrong. There are some people among violent offenders in that category, but there are many others for whom it's a bad day. It's a bad night. It's a bad period of, of life, and to lock them up forever is simply a bad idea because it is bad for all the kids who, like them, will be coming through schools that are inadequate because you're wasting all this money keeping them in jail. I know that that's a tough pill to swallow, but it happens to be the truth. It's a little bit like global warming. The Trump administration is not going to believe it no matter how true it is, but it's true. And we have to, you know, we have to look at what's happening, for example, with people who got life sentences in Pennsylvania, life without parole, based upon acts that occurred when they were juveniles. Well, they represent an extremely wide range of people. They represent the juvenile who stood over his victim and fired a gun into that person's face, hollering, die, MF, die, at the one extreme. And at the other extreme, they represent some knucklehead who was sitting outside with a getaway car on what was supposed to be a robbery where no one was supposed to get hurt. And then something happened inside and the person inside did something terrible. They represent a wide range of, of conduct, but they're treated the same. They're all given life without parole. So what we see now, because the Supreme court has said that no one should be given life without parole without, you know, proper procedures. Uh, what we see now is that an awful lot of juveniles who had every expectation of being in there forever, but have done 25 years or 30 years of coming out, and the recidivism so far is quite low. Interesting. They were so dangerous, they had to be in jail for the rest of their lives, but here they are in their 50s or in their late 40s, and it turns out, at least so far, no matter how broken their family lives or their employment histories or whatever from all those years in jail, it turns out that right now they're not a threat. So we have to be willing to look at that and be realistic that the fact of the commission of a violent uh, crime at some point may or may not signify that you are flat out a bad seed who needs to be locked up forever. We're just going to have to look at that more carefully and be more surgical about how we approach that. What are the things that prosecutors and that you, if you're elected district attorney, can't do? Things that you'd like to see happen, but the legislature would have to take action? Oh, there are tons of things I'd love to see the legislature do, because I think for the most part, legislatures do dumb things when it comes to <laughs> criminal justice. They, you know, they, they come up with laws in response to, you know, events, newsworthy events. Oh, some city council person got stabbed. So now we're going to give some long sentence because he's our buddy and it's in the paper. You know, uh, a terrible crime happened involving a child. We will come up with a law with that child's name and it will say that if you've done X, Y, and Z, then you are to serve your entire life in jail. We'll come up with this whole list of people who are reported, even if they're actually just being reported for getting drunk and urinating in public, you know, we'll call that a sex offense. So I think there's an awful lot of legislation that is brought about by ambitious people, many of them not attorneys, many of them have had nothing to do with the criminal justice system, all of whom read the paper and have big egos, um, 
and they just, they're just bad. I mean, they just come up with a lot of bad stuff. District attorney doesn't pass law. There's nothing I can do about that. District attorney doesn't make the decisions that the appellate courts make, which, which frankly are often political as well. Nothing I can do about that. But um, district attorneys do have quite a bit of discretion, and the appellate courts have made it clear that that's just something that you can't really regulate very well. You know, there has to be some play in the system to try to bring balance and fairness to decisions that are made. And as a consequence of this, district attorney, perhaps more than any other elected official, perhaps more, has the ability to do things based upon opinion and principle without having allies in the legislature or in the governor's office or whatever it may be. Um, sure, occasionally you see these collisions like the one between Aramis Ayala, district attorney in Orlando, and the governor of Florida after she stated that she was not going to pursue the death penalty down there, which was a courageous act. Sometimes you see those collisions, but, but they're uncommon. What is more common is that district attorneys who have historically been very conservative have had a lot of discretion, and that discretion is going to be handed over to district attorneys who are progressive and who are going to be able to exercise it in a different way. Finally, I'd like to talk about your campaign. You were seen as about as outsider a candidate as possible when you first announced, but you won a really decisive victory in the Democratic primary. How did you win? What was the ground game like, um, including groups like Reclaim Philadelphia that knocked on so many doors? And do you think this is something that others can replicate around the country in their own cities? Well, let me answer the last part first. I absolutely think that this is something that can be replicated around the country uh, for a couple of reasons. One is we know that it's worked elsewhere. Uh, there have been approximately 15 races in which there was a sort of grassroots support uh, and also some national support for truly progressive candidates trying to be district attorneys or sheriffs or take important law enforcement positions, including, for example, Sheriff Arpaio's uh, spot in Arizona. And of those, I believe about 15, there have been 12 wins. So it works. Uh, it is obviously locally specific, but it works. And, it, and you know, I'm not elected yet, but hopefully if we're successful in November, I'll be added to that win column as well. So I think it can work. But I think it doesn't just work because there's a reaction to Donald Trump. And it doesn't just work because there is this agreement between many conservatives who want to end mass incarceration and many liberals and progressives want to end it. I think it works because politicians are not very good at what they do. You know, fundamentally, my career, when it wasn't doing the things I've already described, was characterized by the pro bono defense of free speech. And that meant the defense of activists. It was defense of ACT UP. It was defense of Occupy. It was defense of other organizations and individuals who were progressive, whose messages, you know, often were consistent with my beliefs, but not always. You know, What was consistent was that they were trying to speak freely, and I wanted to defend them. And what that meant in my case was that even though you could say I was a complete outsider, I was also inadvertently, unknowingly, building an army of leaders, because that's who activists and organizers are. They are people who are uh, persuasive, energetic, they are verbal, they often have a circle of people who listen to what they have to say. They know how to get things done, and they know how to get things done without governmental support. And as as they age, they tend to become um, very highly achieving people. They tend to become the heads of nonprofits. They tend to become 
still skilled tradesmen. They tend to become, you know, obstetricians like one I just saw the other day or lawyers or chiefs of staff for city council members or elected officials. So um, what I'm getting at is I think activists and organizers do politics better than politicians. And that means that those of us who have been down with their causes and supported them for a long time have credibility. You know, if you have a message that is real, and then you have a messenger who is credible, that messenger is probably not coming out of government. That messenger is probably not coming out of conventional politics. That messenger who's credible probably has a track record for actually believing the things that he or she is saying. Um, and that's what happened with us. We had a we had more volunteers than any other group. They were amazing volunteers because they were activists and organizers. They were social media savvy. They spread things like wildfire. It was referred to by some people as a snowflake structure, in which you know each involved volunteer had their own circle, and so the movement could spread very quickly. Um, I think that's completely. Repeatable. I think the conventional wisdom that in order to run for DA, you got to be DA is actually upside down. Right now, at a time when we have people who are very disillusioned with their politicians and very disillusioned with what's happening in criminal justice, I think some of the, the most capable candidates are going to be the ones who are coming at it from a career outside of that. I mean, I hate to bring them up, but 45 was not a politician. And yet somehow, he managed to get there. Bernie it was such a peculiar politician. You might say the politician from another planet. And yet he <laughs> almost got there with, with 46% of the Democratic vote by being an old Jewish guy with wild hair who said he was a socialist, right? Um, people don't want politicians. And, and I fundamentally believe that people of goodwill who are close to activists and organizers because of the work they've actually done uh, and therefore have a credible record can come with fundamentally progressive ideas and with a base of support that does politics better than politicians, and they can win in many, many, many jurisdictions. And I think they can win, and you can win now in a way that wouldn't have been possible even a few years ago, because attitudes, especially in cities around criminal justice, I think have decisively changed. They have changed. This this is the consequence that conservatives have earned. We are at a point where we know that one out of three black men will experience jail in their lifetime. The number for uh, for white men is one out of 17. The one out of black men for black um, women is one out of 18. And the number for white women is, you know, it's much less frequent than that. So the point that I'm getting at is when the conservatives got their way for decades, and they just kept breaking individuals and breaking neighborhoods that didn't need to be broken by giving young black men convictions for relatively minor offenses that debilitated them from the workforce and that created a cycle of poverty. What you have is an awful lot of black women who are very aware of this, and they are some of our most potent voters out there. You have black men who are aware of it, and you increasingly have millennials holding hands with voters of color around these issues because those millennials, who, by the way, in almost every single state, the young vote was with Bernie, those millennials believe things that are very different than their grandparents and, and much of their parents. They would like their gay marriage, thank you. They would like their recreational marijuana, thank you. They are not fans of racism and division. And they are also not fans of seeing astronomical educational bills and a crap public school system with all the money going into jails. You know, That's just reality. So we, we do have a coalition of voters of color 
and of millennials that will be extremely powerful and I think will be very effective in getting progressive leaders into positions of power. Larry Krasner, thanks so much. Thank you, Dan. Always good to talk. Larry Krasner is a longtime civil rights lawyer, the Democratic nominee for Philadelphia District Attorney, and, like me, full disclosure, is affiliated with Harvard Law's Fair Punishment Project. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once purportedly said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting two or this week, three new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our Postmaster General is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Yes, it feeds the iTunes corporate board, but it also helps put us in touch with new listeners, which makes the world a marginally better place. Also, last but not least, please find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. We need support from listeners to keep this thing going.